Aloha. Welcome to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but nothing replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. Today we're going to be talking about heart failure. What it is, how do you know you're in it, and what are some of the treatments for it? Because over time, treatments have changed and have gotten better, which is fantastic to know. I have a doctor from Kaiser Permanente here, a Dr. Dutt, who is here to share with us her experience and her knowledge of heart failure and all the training that she took to get to the point of being an expert in this area, but also what are some of the latest, greatest types of treatment options that maybe weren't even there back 10, even 15 years ago. Welcome to The Body Show. Thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. Tell me about your journey in medicine. This is, it's something that I find a lot of people either have physicians in their family or they have a personal knowledge of, of medicine and want to go into it. And, and what was your draw to the field of medicine? Sure. So I was very fortunate. I grew up in New York City, um, the daughter of two highly motivated research scientists. My father was at Rockefeller University. My mother was at Memorial Sloan Kettering. We lived in the faculty housing and arguably the highest um, per capita of Nobel laureates on our block. Um, and growing up in Manhattan and being exposed to cutting edge science really set the stage for me to want to go into medicine and make people's lives better. So you started off, you went to, you decided to go to school in Philadelphia? So I grew up in New York City. I went to undergrad at MIT, okay. majored in biology. Um, at the time, Novartis had just relocated to Boston, so I was their first intern for my summer internship. And I was going down the medical school pathway. I, I joined Albert Einstein in New York City um, for medical school and then completed my training um, at Mount Sinai in New York after which I decided that I wanted to specialize specifically within cardiology in an area called advanced heart failure transplant cardiology. And I did a fellowship at Stanford uh, related to that. Well, we're very excited that you're here because heart failure is something that I think there's new terminologies for it and a lot of people don't necessarily understand what it is. It sounds so dramatic, heart failure. The word failure, I think, gets a lot of people worried and excited. And if you hear about kidney failure or liver failure, it tends to have a different connotation. What exactly is heart failure? Sure. So I think you brought up a really good point. There is that stigma of heart failure. Um, and I think there is a movement to rephrase the term to be a heart function doctor, because ultimately, at the end of the day, we're talking about a heart that is unable to adequately pump to meet the demands of the body. And the, this results in backflow of fluid into the lungs, belly, legs, leading to what we call signs and symptoms of congestion. Um, so sometimes it's called congestive heart failure. Heart failure can be because the heart, simply the muscle, is not strong enough. It's weak in terms of its pumping. Alternatively, there's another form of heart failure where the muscle is very stiff and doesn't relax well. And because it fills at higher pressures, you have this congestive phenomenon. So if we were to think about the most common type of heart failure that you see or heart function problems, are they fitting into those categories of either, you mentioned the pump, so we call that systolic or the relaxation, diastolic. Do most of the cases you see fit into that heart as the primary reason for the problem? Yeah. There is a whole spectrum, and there are other more complicated and etiologies, but by and large, you can say that these are the two primary groups. And then secondary causes not related to the heart, so that's sort of a whole different discussion. Yes. So let's talk about some of the 
primary causes, like you mentioned, that heart pump issue. There's there's a new term that I'm seeing in cardiology that has to do with the percentage of your heart pump function. Is it preserved or is it reduced? So for the average patient individual, how might they know that they have a problem with heart failure? You described a little bit of the swelling, maybe some fluid in their lungs, swelling in their body. Are those the classic symptoms of heart failure that they would have? Yeah. So the things that we look out for, so if they're noticing rapid weight gain, I mean, two to three pounds overnight, five pounds in a week, that's concerning for rapid water weight. If they're noticing that they're getting short of breath, particularly when they're lying down at night, if they're having trouble breathing. So we often ask our patients, have you had to change the number of pillows that you need to lie on? Have you needed to sleep on a recliner? That's a very um, specific sign for heart failure. If they're getting short of breath when they're walking around, if they're noticing also things like abdominal bloating, not being able to eat a full meal, getting full very quickly, that can also be a sign of you know, swelling within the gut system. So in those situations, we would, would that mostly be indicative of someone who has a reduced level of heart function? So not necessarily. Both of these ultimately lead to congestion and these symptoms. And ultimately, to make the distinction, you need an ultrasound of your heart or an echocardiogram because the distinction is going to rely on how the pumping itself is of the heart, which is characterized by that. So from a clinical standpoint, symptoms, we just described what someone might notice themselves or concerns, worry signs. From a medical perspective, let's say they present to their primary care provider and they're told, you know, hey, you might have a serious heart problem. Then they might do a test like you described, this echocardiogram or heart ultrasound. How does that test take place? Are there any needles involved? Are there any sort of different chemicals involved? Or is that pretty much a simple test that is quick and easy and can give people some good information. Yeah, it's a very useful diagnostic test. It's pr- it's essentially very non-invasive. It's you, you know, it involves putting a probe with some gel on the chest and obtaining pictures of the heart. And the test overall takes about 20 to 30 minutes. On occasion, if the images are difficult to see, there may be an IV placed with some contrast given to look better at the heart. But it's very useful as a test. It's not scary, it's not painful, and provides a lot of good information. And there's no side effects? No. And you can do, you can monitor this regularly. I mean, I know sometimes we talk about CAT scans and other things. There's a concern about radiation exposure. Yeah. But with ultrasound, the way I describe it to patients is, You know, this is the same kind of ultrasound they do on pregnant women to look at the baby. It's just we're not looking for a baby. We're looking at your heart. Yes. So it's that safe. Yes, totally. Hopefully you don't have to do it as often, but there you go. So now with that type of uh, information, we're looking at a couple of different factors when you do this echocardiogram. What are some of the key features that you would look at to help distinguish a heart that looks normal on that test versus one that doesn't? Sure. So one, fundamentally, we want to know how is the pumping of the heart. And we characterize that by something called an EF, which stands for ejection fraction. That refers to the fraction of blood that comes out with every beat. In a normal heart, that number is 55%. As in, you don't expel everything, but the ejection fraction should be around 55 or higher. By definition, heart failure with reduced ejection fraction is when that number is 40% or less. In addition to the you know, ejection fraction, we can also see if the heart has remodeled. Is this a heart that has become dilated over time? That sometimes can speak to the, potentially the chronicity of the heart failure symptoms. 
And it also helps us decide what might be the cause. So if we find valve disease, so leaky valves or valves that don't close well, stenotic valves, sometimes that can be part of the reason for the heart failure. Um, so we also, in regards to the preserved ejection fraction um, subtype, we can get some ideas of how well the heart relaxes. And for those who have this situation where their heart is, I would imagine with the reduced ejection fraction, that EF would be below 40%. With the preserved, you could see the dilated, you could see valvular issues, but you could also see that with people who have that unfortunate reduced below 40%. Yeah. That could happen with both. Yeah. The other thing is, you know, one of the most common causes for a weak heart is coronary artery disease. So people who have a history of heart attacks or heart blockages. And we can also see, is the muscle, the heart muscle uniformly down or is there some regionality? And that can speak to, if there is more specific regionality, that can speak to the distribution of an artery that's supplying that blood flow being, you know, problematic. All right, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. When we come back, we're going to continue our discussion with Dr. Dutt from Kaiser Permanente Medical Center, and we are going to be reviewing some more about what are some of the issues regarding heart concerns, and what if you have some problems when you don't necessarily have a pump issue, but you have problems with relaxation. We'll discuss and describe that some more. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Hastings and Pleadwell, a communication company. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, and I'm here with Dr. Deblina Dutt from Kaiser Permanente, and we're talking about issues related to the heart. Now, right before the break, we were talking about some problems about heart function issues, and we described that ejection fraction, that percentage of blood that the heart pumps out normally is about 55%. So when somebody sees, if they happen to read an echocardiogram report, and they see a 55%, they should be happy. That doesn't mean that only half of their heart's working. That's actually the good number. Yeah, that's a good pumping heart. And if it goes down below 40%, that's when we start to classify different situations of, of heart function or heart failure. Mm -hmm. Now, there's, there's different levels of heart failure, below 40%, below 25%, below 10%. So there's gradations. They mm -hmm. used to go by, speaking of New York, where you, were, where you were training, they used to go by trainings of New York heart classification yes. levels. Do we still use those, or yes. have we moved away from that? We do use those. I think that helps in the immediate moment that you're seeing a patient. It helps to describe what their functional capacity is. So class one is the asymptomatic patient that incidentally had an ultrasound that showed the heart was weak. Whereas class four is the very severe symptomatic patient that has symptoms that are completely debilitating even at rest. And those would be the people you would expect. They might have swelling. They might have breathing issues. They can't lay flat. Recliner, if they're lucky, maybe just sitting up. That could be the level at which they're at. Yeah. Now, typically in the hospital setting, most people would be in the three to four categories. And there are some new medications to treat that. Yeah. Some of the ones that I remember from training, when and this was long ago, that was when they first said, okay, beta blockers could be good. Because yeah. previously, they were not used in that situation. We were using other types of medications. But they found that certain beta blockers that selectively help the heart pump really revolutionized the uh, percentage that we would see of this ejection fraction. I recall seeing patients who went from like 35% up to 50%. I mean, they were almost in a normal category when they took their medication regularly. 
But now there are some new medications out there. Some of them, in fact, originally developed for things like diabetes Mm -hmm. that are now used to help with heart failure. How did that come about? So that's a very interesting story. So the class that you're referring to is the SGLT2 inhibitor class of medications. And honestly, the, the, the origin was that this was purely a, uh, the beginnings of this was it was a purely a safety, is this diabetes medication safe from a cardiovascular outcome standpoint? So it was purely because there have been diabetes medications that have adverse cardiac events. So it was initially studied in regards to safety, and lo and behold, there was a finding that this class of medications dramatically reduced the incidence of heart failure, hospitalizations, and mortalities as a combined endpoint. And that led to this whole foray of research of, is it just diabetic patients? And now we know, no, if patients have heart failure, irrespective of whether they have diabetes, they can benefit from this medication. Then there was a whole slew of you know, trials dedicated to, hey, is it applicable to the heart failure with reduced ejection fraction? And we know that it is. And then more recently, is it applicable to that stiff heart or the heart failure with the preserved EF ejection fraction? And this was very exciting because historically we didn't have good treatment options, and now we actually do for that category of patients. Why do you, why do you think it works? So there are a lot of proposed mechanisms on a... Very simplistic level, there is the fact that because it's a diabetes medication, it causes you to excrete um, glucose. And along with that, because it's a sodium glucose co-transporter, it causes you to also pee out sodium. And a lot of what we do with our medications to achieve symptom relief is to have patients pee out um, salt. (laughs) Eat less salt or get rid of the salt that they already ate based on some of the other medications. But beyond that, there are proposed mechanisms relating to things like the normal hormonal axis. So a lot of the hormone systems that are upregulated in heart failure, there's proposed mechanisms on the vasculature and also on scarring that can form within the heart and having preventative mechanisms on that regard too. We know that this this class of medications, so SGLT2 inhibitors, can be helpful for diabetes, can be helpful for heart failure, and can also be helpful for slowing the progression of chronic kidney disease. One medication, multiple effects, really one of those blockbuster type of medications when we think about the, the issue and the complexity of the, of the medical condition. Mm-hmm. You know, some people use blockbuster to mean makes a lot of money, but we're talking about blockbuster as in makes a lot of people healthier or yeah. keeps them out of the hospital and keeps them from progressing with their medical condition, whether it be kidney or cardiac or even diabetes, which these days, truthfully, that combination of all three tends to happen in a lot of folks. Mm-hmm. People with diabetes often have kidney effects, and we don't want to see that get worse. And uh, hopefully, in some cases, they do have undiagnosed coronary artery disease. We talked a little bit about blockage issues and how that can also affect the heart. So let's talk a little bit about the, the what we call diastolic or heart heart function preserved type of heart failure. This means that the percent might be the same that you expect, 55, sometimes 65, sometimes 75%. Higher isn't necessarily always better, but in this case, the heart gets very stiff. Mm-hmm. So it's a slightly different situation. In fact, it's kind of the opposite mm-hmm. of the, the heart failure that where the pump doesn't work well. Now we have a pump that almost works too well. Uh-huh. What would be the problem with that, and why does that cause an issue in your body? So the problem is that the heart is just not relaxing well and not filling well. And because it doesn't fill easily, you get elevated pressures up top in the top chambers, which then spills into the lungs and the neck veins and the rest of your body. 
So, you know, there's a this class, number one, is just as common as heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, also has the same morbidity and mortality associated with it. And as I was mentioning, we didn't have great treatment options until very recently. But in terms of the treatment, it is, number one, you want to try to try first line therapy is this class of medications, the SGLT2 inhibitors. Beyond that, we use what we call water pills or diuretics to relieve some of the symptoms of congestion. But it's also because this this particular entity is associated with many other heart conditions, such as irregular heart rhythm, atrial fibrillation, we are very proactive in trying to restore a normal rhythm if we can. Um, it's associated with obesity. We're very proactive about weight loss management and cardiac rehabilitation. It's associated with high blood pressure, so really trying to proactively control some of the other things like hypertension, high blood pressure, sleep apnea that can be contributing to the heart becoming stiffer over time. When we think about those other conditions, the fibrillation, the obesity, the blood pressure, the sleep apnea, would they also potentially contribute to the reduced pump yes. type of heart failure as yeah. well. So those those particular medical problems, sometimes in medicine we call them comorbidities, those could actually put you at risk for not just the can't relax heart failure problem, but also the can't pump heart failure problem. Yes. Yeah. And in that case, the treatment options you mentioned, this new class of medications can be used for the preserved. Blood pressure is one of those things that I think people often because it's called the silent killer and people don't feel it, they feel like, okay, my blood pressure is better now on these medications. I can stop them. But when they do that and they have this heart failure preserved ejection fraction, would they notice the side effects of stopping it quickly enough to reverse that? Or I, I would think, and I, I could, be, could be wrong on this, that if you have a systolic pump failure and you stop your medication, that's going to progress maybe a little more rapidly than if you have the the diastolic or you have just the pump stiffness. Does that happen? Yeah, so it's a good question. So from the systolic, absolutely, we know that stopping it is very bad. Um, you can have a very high recurrence of heart failure symptoms. So part of the teaching and counseling is that you feel fantastic, your heart failure is better, but we're going to keep this lifelong unless we have a very good reason to stop it. From the preserved ejection fraction, Again, the data is less robust for some of the other classes of medications, but for the SGLT2, we know that it's, it's beneficial. And patients often will find that their symptoms of congestion are better being on these medications, so they often won't want to stop it. If they do stop it, be it for cost reasons or access issues, then oftentimes we have to supplement the, the water pill or diuretics to achieve the same symptom benefit. But at, at this point, that, that entity is more about the symptoms and trying to relieve the symptoms than, like you said, looking at the ejection fraction, because that part of it is okay. All right, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, and you're listening to The Body Show. Today we're talking about heart failure. What are some of the causes? What are some of the symptoms? And what are some of the latest treatments that are available out there that can help you if you or someone you love has a diagnosis of heart failure? When we come right back, we are going to discuss further options and ways that things to consider that will help people hopefully to keep their heart pumping as best as possible for as long as they can. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors, Bavarian Motor Experts, and Chaminade University. 
Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, and I'm here with Dr. Dutt from Kaiser Permanente. And we're talking today about heart failure and what are some of the reasons why people get it, what are some of the symptoms, and what can they do about it. Now, we were just talking about that combination of the two major primary reasons for heart failure, that pump issue or the relaxation issue. And earlier you talked about some of the signs and symptoms, which could include gaining weight, two or three pounds overnight, five pounds in a week, having other problems laying flat, having difficulties with endurance, maybe noticing changes in blood pressure or changes in your heart rate. We talked about the, the issue with the diastolic or the stiff heart and how heart rhythm issues, whether it be fibrillation or another rhythm problem, could also contribute to some of these problems. Now, in some cases, people do different types of monitoring at home. And I remember in the past, we used to have patients get scales and check their weight at home and do things that would help them to to empower them to know what to do. But we'd also give them like a an algorithm. Okay, so if your weight goes up this much, this is what you do. And it would become kind of complicated for a lot of patients. And particularly if they're sick and they have other issues going on, maybe not that easy to be doing self-management on their own. But now there's a whole concept of remote patient monitoring. Yeah. Tell me more about how that can really help people who have this heart failure condition. Sure. I'm glad that you brought this up because at the end of the day, we want to get to optimal medical therapy. We have, thankfully, in the last 15 years, really, really good medications that can improve the trajectory from a survival and symptom relief standpoint. And the challenge is getting there in a way that's convenient for patients and clinicians. So at Kaiser Permanente, we have a heart failure remote monitoring program, as well as a high blood pressure, hypertension remote monitoring program. And what that looks like is we have, uh, the patients have to have a smartphone. They have to be willing to check and transmit their vitals daily. We provide them with the equipment, a blood pressure cuff and scale. But the beauty is that this equipment is synced into our Kaiser app so that we can log on. And instead of them typing out their blood pressure and their weight, we actually can get the trajectory, the variance day to day. um, And we can get their blood pressure numbers, and their weight numbers. We ask them to send that information in every day, but our heart failure team will plan two days a week to sit down and proactively review those medications. And this eliminates the need for the patient to come back and forth to a clinic visit. If they're reliable, they can send in those numbers, and we can act upon them to anticipate trends leading towards possible hospitalization and hopefully stop that, and also get their you know medications improved. Um, in a much faster way. So it really sounds like a proactive way to say, look, you're at home, you're busy, we're busy, you might not be able to take a day off of work, and if you wait until you're symptomatic, we've missed an opportunity to help you. Yeah. But if we can start to see your numbers, the parameters that you that you mentioned, then we might be able to intervene earlier. Yes. Give you that sort of, okay, if, if it looks like the following is going on and your laboratory studies concur, maybe we have to adjust this medication, go up, take this one, cut it in half. Are the parameters you mentioned, blood pressure machine and scale, so you're looking at weight, you're looking at blood pressure, you're looking at heart rate, Yes, those would be the main things. Yeah, and I want to point out that in the pandemic, we had many patients, heart failure patients who had COVID infection, and it, this became a very nice way of making sure that they were stable through their infection. Because we had the blood pressure, if they got sick for any reason, we were able to adjust their medications accordingly. And if they had rhythm issues, sometimes we could detect that by the trend of their heart rates. 
So we typically will make every conscientious effort to get people with a new diagnosis into this program, follow them very closely for three months. So we're, you know, having them send in data. We're actively as a team looking at it twice a week. And then typically our paradigm is at the end of three months to do another ultrasound or echo of the heart. And usually by and large, we're, we're able to see that they're feeling better and their ejection fraction EF has gotten better as well. I could imagine something like this could be set up so that the clinicians looking at it twice a week could actually just look at the ones where they get alerted. So that if there's, you know, we talk about where is the application of AI in medicine? I don't think we necessarily need AI as much as just large language modeling. If we just figure out who are the patients who checked in, sent all their parameters to you, which are the ones in the top of the list that fell off of this particular defined element that says, okay, they're normal, they're within an okay spectrum. And then the only ones that you really have to get involved in are the ones that are outside of that range, as opposed to every single one. Yeah. So there are definitely some in that group that are like high alert, high, you know, and we actually have, so we do check twice a week, but we have alerts also set up. So if it's be outside of our checking window, but the blood pressure is dangerously low. Or we have alerts set up so that we are going to act on it even outside of those reviewing days. But some of it, some of it is yes, checking that their numbers are in normal range. But more of it is also just not just getting these meds on, but actively, conscientiously titrating them up to what we call target doses in heart failure. So some of that is a little bit of an art because for some one patient, we might prefer to do one medication versus another in a different patient, but. Um, that's kind of the value that we, instead of having them have, a come, have to come in for a clinic visit, we're able to do that much faster with, with this way. Well, and, you know, a lot of things changed with the pandemic. Telemedicine took off. And now we're finding different ways that patients can do their own monitoring and can help be more proactive in taking care of their medical condition, which I think if they feel better and they see that immediate impact of what they're doing and seeing how it helps them with their level of functioning, they're gonna wanna continue to do this. This is gonna get them excited about being able to manage what otherwise previously became, was mainly, you know, physician management as opposed to patient empowering and having them manage it on their own. Yeah, they love the experience. They love knowing their numbers. They're very attuned to their body. They're able to also easily send comments need a refill, feeling more puffy today, whatever it is, to quickly communicate with us. Uh, But, you know, typically, like I said, we follow them very closely for three months, and then we'll often say, hey, you've done very well. Your heart function has normalized. You can graduate. And you'll be surprised by how many people want to continue with us just because they've had such a good experience. They don't want to graduate. They want to keep going. Well, you know, there's certainly a value in continuing to get that feedback and knowing how much easier it is for them getting refills, getting information, getting that that ability to change what's going on based on how they're feeling. I certainly see a significant value in that. Now, we do know it is February. It is heart month. So we want to make sure that people do get an opportunity to focus on what's going on for their heart. Where do you see the field of heart failure going in the next five, 10 years? I mean, I think if we look at the last five, 10 years, new medications, diabetes medications that were found to really improve heart issues, what's next? What do you, where do you see us going now? Yeah. So I think that more and more we're coming up with AI and remote monitoring tools to diagnose and treat more proactively heart failure patients. And more and more, uh, you know, there's been a lot of tools in our toolkit to address. So we have the medications in heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. There's four, you know, pillars of heart failure therapy. But now we also have device-based therapy and transcatheter therapies that can help patients with valve disease. So I think there's a lot more of things that we can do without open heart surgery, for example. 
Well, and that sounds like a great place for us to have another discussion because that's, you know, the whole idea of transcatheter valvular replacement, starting off with the aortic valve and now looking at some other valves that potentially could be impacted in that way. It takes the fear out of open heart surgery. Yes. And I think that's a, a huge burden and barrier for people to think, I have to have a big procedure. There are certain reasons why they should, but sometimes there are ways that they could do this in a less invasive format. Mm -hmm. I really appreciate you sharing your expertise with us today here on The Body Show. Thank you. That's Dr. Dutt from Kaiser Permanente, and she is helping us to understand more about heart failure. What are the different types and what are the ways to know if someone has some troubles with that? If you are a loved one, have symptoms like that, check in with your primary care provider and find out if you need to do further testing to see how your heart is and if you're doing well overall. I definitely want people to, to join in again and listen to this podcast on hpr.org if they feel as though they want to hear it again and learn some more there are links to the body show on that website you can also find us on the hpr app our engineer is david chong i'm dr kathleen kozak we'll be here next week and every monday right here on public radio see you then